Our text this morning is Genesis 28, verses 10 through 22. It is a very familiar and famous passage, one that I dare say many of you have heard in Sunday school pasts over and over again. But as we come to this text, I would encourage you to come to it to hear what the Lord has to say and not to take for granted what you know about Jacob or the latter. Let's turn then, if we would, to Genesis 28. This is the very Word of God. It is eternal. It is completely without error. It is authoritative. And it is sufficient. Genesis 28 beginning at verse 10. (coughs) Jacob left Beersheba and went towards Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night, because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, There was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring." Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of heaven. Excuse me, the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me, and will keep me in the way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, we we ask this morning that you would meet with us in your word. Meet with us, O Lord, by your spirit. Convict us of our sin. Encourage us with your love. 
and show us the Lord Jesus Christ. For it is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. In the world today, if you look around and speak to people, you will see that people are constantly seeking God. This may seem odd because people, when they seek God, don't seek the God of the Bible very often. They seek a God that they want to control, a God they want to put in their own image. Some seek to do this through knowledge. They fashion for themselves a God who is somehow found in the forces of nature, in the being of the fabric of the universe. They don't know who He is or what He does, except for perhaps that He has spun all things into existence through some kind of big bang. Others seek God through a religion that they formulate, seeking to control God by setting up the parameters of their relationship with Him that He owes them. You've seen this. Perhaps it's even been in your heart at times. If I only do this, God must give me that. And they seek after Him. Others seek a God who is nothing more than a vague hope. He is a kind being that places no demands upon us, but meets our needs only. If we can use a turn of phrase from the season, God is like a big, giant Santa Claus, without the naughty and nice list, and without the cold. He's simply there to shower things upon us whenever we want them. But what we need to remember, especially in this season, is to tell ourselves and to tell others around us that we do not seek God. God seeks us. God is the seeker. He seeks after His people. And we see a wonderful example of this this morning. As God comes after Jacob and makes Himself known in a very real a personal way. I'd like us to see three things from our text this morning. First, that God is with His people. He is with Jacob, and He is with His people today. Secondly, we will see that God gives promises to His people. He is not only present with them, He gives them promises that they can rely upon. And then thirdly and finally, we see that God is worshipped. By His people. Those who are His people are drawn to worship Him because of who He is and what He has done. Well, let's begin then by looking at how God is with His people. Our story opens up here in verse 10 with Jacob leaving Beersheba and going towards Haran. Now, you remember the story. Jacob had received the blessing of his father Isaac but he had received it through trickery and deception. And just as you could imagine in your own household, if one of your children received something through trickery, all of the others in the household would cry in unison, that's not fair, that's mine. 
And so Esau was filled with anger, so much anger that he actually said to himself out loud for others to hear, as soon as my father has died, I'm going to put an end to Jacob. And so Jacob hears of this from his mother, and she has a, a plan. She says, why don't you go leave for a while? Can't be more than a couple of weeks. Take a vacation. Go and find a bride and come back here when your brother has calmed down. Well, of course, the family wouldn't know that this couple of week vacation would turn into decades away from home. They didn't know that Jacob would never see his father Isaac alive again. But this is what happens to us when we plan. You see, God had all of this determined from before the foundation of the world. God was about to meet with Jacob, to do business with him. And Jacob was a man who needed to do business with God. He was a self-sufficient man. He was used to getting what he wanted. Does he want a birthright? Seize an opportunity. Have some lentil soup. Got to love the beans. Give me your birthright. Does he need a blessing? Well, let's cook up a plan. And I'll get a blessing. You can imagine that it would be good to be Jacob living in Isaac's community where all of the people around him would know that he was the son of the patriarch. They would give him a wide berth down the road. They would be kind to him. They would say nice things about him. They certainly would not want to upset him and upset the family. And Jacob was a self-sufficient man that was not afraid to blur the edges a bit. You know what I mean. He was the kind of a guy that could come up with a reason or an excuse that why what he did wasn't really wrong. You know this, don't you, kids? You're just not as good at it as Jacob. But you practice that with your mother and father, don't you? Why, you really should have been able to get that cookie before dinner. There's a perfectly good reason. Why, there's a perfectly good reason you didn't need to clean your room. Or you didn't need to go to bed on time. This is the way that Jacob was. And he probably left with great confidence. Thinking to himself, I'll be gone a couple of weeks. This will be a great trip. I'll have some fun. I'll find a beautiful wife who will take care of me. I'll live a life of ease and luxury. The world is my oyster. Do you feel like that sometimes? Maybe you felt like that when you started college or high school. And about now, when final exams are coming up, you're realizing the world is not only not your oyster, it's not even a clam. Life is hard. Things you didn't expect come in the way. Reality has set in, and Jacob is at a very low point in his life. He has no prop to pick him up. Mom is not going to wake him up when he doesn't wake up in the morning. Dad's not going to lay out his clothes. He's not going to get spending money from the family. The gravy train has stopped. He's off on his own. He's completely aware of his need. Where he had a large family, now he's alone. He had great wealth and things around him, and now he's poor. The best he can manage for a pillow is a rock. Now, can you imagine that? Our Boy Scouts among us, have you ever slept 
on a rock deliberately. No. He doesn't have anything. Where he had status, now he is dishonored, running on the Lamb. And where before he was so bold to concoct a plan and to get his way, now he's afraid. He's weaker than he's ever been. And that's exactly where God wants him. You see, God is with his people in the midst of their circumstances and when they're not looking. Jacob is retracing the steps of his grandfather Abraham, going nearly exactly the same way. When Abraham came down to the promised land, he stopped at what is now Bethel. And he built an altar. But you see, now Jacob is alone. He doesn't have any help. His father or his mother. He doesn't have his brother around to be his excuse, to blame him. And he is off, but this is not a spiritual pilgrimage. Do not get the impression, because Jacob is a Bible person, that he is traveling on some kind of pilgrimage, waking up in the morning, breaking out his scroll and having his quiet time, praying to the Lord, memorizing Scripture. No. He's just trying to survive. He's just trying to make it from one day to the next. He's just trying to make it lay down in the dirt and put his head on a rock. Is that what your life looks like sometimes? You're just trying to survive. Just trying to make it from day to day. Trying to make it so the kids don't overwhelm you. Trying to make it so school doesn't crush you. You see, this is again the place that God wants us to be. Do not let the busyness of the ordinary life get in the way of the business with God. For some of you, this time of the year is a time with so much work to occupy yourself. You've got to make sure you have the right clothes that are the right colors, the right decorations in the home, the right presents with the right wrapping, the right timing and everything. And you see, it is not about any of those things. It is about a relationship with the One who came, the living God, the Lord Jesus Christ. But you see, the more we let the busyness of the season and of work and of children and of school get in our way, it puts a barrier between us and God. A barrier that we erect to keep God away from us. Our story this morning is an example of how God will break through these barriers. He bridges heaven and earth. He breaks in as Jacob lies down to sleep and he sees this ladder or this staircase or I guess we might even think of it as an escalator. It's the only time this word is used in all of the Hebrew Bible. But the idea is that it is a bridge between earth and heaven. Better yet, a bridge between God Almighty and us. You see, Jacob is completely passive. He's not seeking after God. He's not running around begging to be heard by God. He is dead, tired, asleep. And God breaks in and gets a hold of him and tells him who he is. This is exactly the way God related to his grandfather Abraham. You remember he was asleep and God gave him a vision that he would be his God forever. God is the one who has fellowship 
with his people. And he brings a message to Jacob that is exactly suited to his circumstances. He tells him that God has not left him. And he won't. That the promises are still there. And that the Lord God Almighty is aware of Jacob. Are you listening for God in the midst of your providence? You see, it may be that He's speaking to you through illness, through cancer, through back pain, through legs that won't work, through financial difficulties and struggles, through challenges with your spouse or your children. God will get your attention. Because you see, ultimately, all of those circumstances are not what are important. It's the relationship we have with God. This bridge is very obvious to us. For you see, our Lord Jesus Christ described for us in John chapter 1 that He is that bridge. He says, Jacob saw this ladder with the angels ascending and descending on it, and so you too see me. And isn't that who Jesus Christ is? The bridge between God and man? The one that brings us into relationship with the all-eternal God? This is who Jacob saw aforetime. God is with his people. But God also gives promises to His people. Look with me at verse 13. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father, and the God of Isaac. God begins first by reiterating for Jacob all of the blessings He's already given to him. And we need that reminder. Because otherwise we are tempted to think we got to where we are all on our own. And the truth is, we haven't. Which one of you created the air that you breathe? Or caused the sun to rise to give you heat? Or caused yourself to be born into the world? You see, all of the things that we have and all of who we are, we are completely dependent upon the Lord for. He has already fulfilled great promises to us right now where we are. And remembering that gives us great hope and optimism for the future. The memories are helpful because the Lord then begins to lay out His promises. He says, The land on which you lie I will give to you and your offspring. It's as if He says to Jacob, You are poor now. But you won't always be. I will give you riches. And there is an immediate promise that is mixed in here. He says in verse 15 that he will bring him back to the land in which he has promised him. God is going to give him the land that he has promised Abraham and Isaac. The second thing that he promises is that he will bless his descendants Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. What a precious promise. 
It's twofold, isn't it? It's a repetition of the Abrahamic covenant that says that God will bless the entirety of the earth through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God is at work on a grand scale in redemption, and he's using Jacob. But there's something else here. We might miss it. But I'm guessing the people here who can best understand this would be some young ladies, maybe some young men. Those who are thinking about the husband or the wife they might have, what they'll look like. Will they have kids? Will they live in the country or in the suburbs or in the city? And they're not sure, and it's all sort of out there, isn't it? Here God says to Jacob, you will find a wife. You will have children. You will have so many descendants, and I will bless the earth through them. You see, God's promises are not just big and out there. They're also narrow and in here for us. He gives direct promises to us in our lives. You see, we need to merely act on the promises that God has given to us. The Lord has spoken it. We can rely on it. God is also telling Jacob, in the midst of all of his trials and suffering, that he has real worth. He is going to be the vehicle through which God will bless all the families of the earth. But you see, it's not like Jacob would want that to happen. You see, Jacob's version would have him inventing something that everyone would owe him for. Or coming up with some kind of grand scheme or great thought that everyone would look up to Jacob because of what he had done. But that's not how God works. You see, God says, Jacob, you have worth not because of your brilliance, not because of who you are or what you have done. You have worth because you are a part of my purpose, my ongoing purpose for you and for the world. This is the way the Lord looks upon all of His children. You have worth in His eyes, not because you have the best grades, Not because you have the neatest house. Not because you have the best job. You have worth in His eyes because you are a part of His eternal purpose and plan. This is the work of the Lord. He not only confirms the blessings and the promises that He will give to Jacob, He confirms His presence with him. He begins this by saying, I am the Lord using that great covenantal formula, that self-existent name of God, I am who I am. And he says, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father, and the God of Isaac. I fear that this is the way that many of you see God. You see God, the God of your father, the God of your mother, the God of your aunts and your grandparents. For some of you here this morning, that's why you're sitting in a seat. Because someone else has brought you to be with their God. 
You see, Jacob is in that spot right now. Do you remember back to the story of the blessing? When Isaac asked Jacob, how did you find the game so quickly? And Jacob answered, the Lord your God gave me blessing. You see, now Jacob has to find out that it is not enough to have Abraham's God, to have Isaac's God. These are giants in the faith, but they are not enough for Jacob. Jacob must have Jacob's God. He must meet with the Lord. And that is why the Lord God Himself has come down to Jacob. He says, I am with you. Not just now, but always. I will protect you, He says. He says, I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. I am with you and I will keep you wherever you go. God is making sure that Jacob knows that he's not alone, that he is not abandoned, because the Lord is there with him. And he says something a bit odd in verse 15. He says, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I promised to you. And we might hear that and think, well, when the promise is done, does God leave? He said He'd be there until. Is the Lord going to leave? Perhaps even you think this way in your own life. What you think is, God will be with me and help me until I get it all together. Until it so happens that I can manage my own life. That I can strike out on my own. But you see, what God is saying here is exactly the opposite. What God is saying is that He will remain and you will know He will remain because He will accomplish His promises. Not one of His promises will be unfulfilled. He will remain with us. We are not abandoned. This is actually a word of assurance from the living God. Jacob can count on the Lord and His Word at the very center of his being. The Lord God is with His people, and He also gives promises to His people. And as His people realize this and understand this, Their response is one of worship. God is worshipped by His people. We see this here in verse 16. Jacob wakes up from his sleep. And he says, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. Now Jacob has been profoundly affected by this encounter with God. To understand The shock value of this, just have your eyes scan down from verse 10 and see how many times the word behold is used. That's the translation of the ancient Hebrew, hey, look over here. And you see, they come one on the other. And look, there's a ladder. And look, there's angels. And look, there's God. And Jacob wakes up, and he wakes up in a start, and he says, God is in this place. He can almost feel it palpably. 
It's like electricity in the air. And how does he respond to this encounter with God? Well, he understands the impact. He says, I did not know it. If I would have known it, I wouldn't have done something as mundane as sleeping. I would have built an altar. I would have done something. But you see, God is everywhere that we are. It doesn't take a special place or a special time. God is found with Jacob. He meets us exactly where we are. He is patient with us. There is a lie that comes from the pit of hell. And that lie says that you need to get yourself ready for God. You need to prepare your place. Prepare your house. Get your dress cleaned up. Eat the right foods. Have the right mannerisms. Have the right relationships. Read the right books. Do the right things. But you see, that is a lie from Satan. God is not waiting for you to get ready for Him. God is coming for you in Jesus Christ. He's not waiting for you to clean up your act. He's telling you, like Jacob, He will clean you up. He will meet with you. And He will change you. And you will never be the same again. Ever. Day upon day. Jacob understands that this is the beginning of the change for him. He goes to sleep in a pagan place called Luz. And that just sounds downright ugly, doesn't it? It sounds like the kind of place where you wouldn't want to stop for gas, let alone sleep. Do you know what Luz means? It's interesting. It's a place Jacob would stop. It means cunning. Devious. Trickery. But you see, Jacob has now met with the living God and he understands that God is his God and he is changed. And this pagan, wicked place now becomes the house of God. You see, the Lord God changes everything. When he comes into your life, he changes everything about you and your interactions with others. Every place now that you go is holy. Holy ground. Not because of you. Not because of the place. But because the Lord God is found there. And Jacob does something that I think we can also be encouraged by. He meets God here and he realizes the change and he seizes it and he takes ownership of it. He's not willing to let this place stay and be a pagan place. He's not willing to let deceit and trickery be a part of his life. He says, no, I'm going to change right now. Now, there's another encouragement built into this later on down the road because he's all fired up for change now. And over and over again, we will see him fall on his face as he tries to figure out what it means to be a godly man and to walk with the Lord. He messes up more than his share. I'll reveal your secret. God knows you mess up. God knows what you say in your head, even when it doesn't come out your mouth. God knows what you want to do and are prevented from doing. 
God knows when you fall short. And in Jesus Christ, He loves you anyway. You see, the change is wrought by God. And He's also in control of the pace of the change. Follow after Him. And so Jacob realizes who God is. He remembers God by setting up a mini tower so that he could come back and recall in his mind what has happened. And then he does the only thing that a child of God can do in the presence of God. And that is, he worships. He makes a solemn vow here in verse 20. The Hebrew actually says, Jacob vowed a vow. He really vowed. He solemnly vowed. He vowed a vow saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my Father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. Now at first reading here, this doesn't sound so good, does it? I told you Jacob is just starting to change. We read this and we say, well, you know, it's a little bit conditional. If God will give him what he wants, then he'll take God as God. But don't read so fast. Where does he get this from? Where does he get the conditions from? Does he make them up? Does he sit down on the rock he slept and make a list and say, all right, God, here's what you do. You take me. You keep me. You protect me. You be with me. No. He gets every part of this condition from the promise that God has already given to him. It's what the psalmist does all the time. He prays back to God, God's word to him. You see, he knows this is going to be fulfilled. There is no real condition here that Jacob has made because he is pleading back to God the promises of God. It's like you saying, God, if you will leave me and never forsake me, I will have you as my God. Well, he's promised that. Lord, if you will take away my sins by faith in Jesus Christ, you will be my God. He's already promised that. And so you see, what Jacob has done here is to come to the realization that what God has said affects his reality and who he is. And it has a practical effect on his life. It's something that we don't think is very spiritual. Look at the last verse. And I will give you, and all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Jacob is so touched in the core of his being that he says, God, you're in control of my money. And Jacob is a man that knows all about money. Right? We're going to learn more of that. He is a schemer. He knows how to make the oxen grow. He knows how to make the flocks get big. He knows which wife he wants. He knows how to get the blessing. He knows how to invest the money. 
but he realizes that when he's been changed, he can't take that one little part of himself and hide it away. He's got to give it all to God. And he's again very emphatic. He says, I will tithe a tenth to you. Now, I want you to notice that this is not a call to poverty. It's not, I'll give everything up and live poor and hope that people will feed me. It's not, I won't work hard, I don't need any money, I just need to walk around and be with God. It's, there are practical implications to your relationship with Jesus Christ. You cannot let anything control you, including money. You see, that's at the center of giving and tithing. It's not about the kingdom work. God doesn't need our money. God doesn't need our time. God doesn't need our talent. But He uses it for our good. He's changed us so that we might see the effect of the change in our ministry to other people. And Jacob is seeing this. He has struck Jacob at exactly the point at which Jacob needed to be struck. He was a man concerned about safety and well-being and his own stuff. And God came right there at him at that point. And the Hebrew doesn't give us any outs, folks. The tense here is what we call a frequentative tense, an iterative tense. It's not a one-time year-end gift. It's not a special donation to the Bethel House Fund. It's a saying that says, I will live the rest of my life and all that I have for you, Lord. This is the challenge that God gives to us. He meets with us. He gives us His exceedingly precious promises and He calls upon us to a relationship with Him, to worship Him, to be with Him for all eternity. Let's pray.